Blessed Lord, we give you thanks uh, for, for your people, for binding us together, holding us together, Lord, as, as married couples, as brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. And thank you for your gifts that nurture and nourish our faith. Lord, as we're studying uh, the book of Leviticus and seeing how you met with your people in times of old, we pray that you would continue to encourage us in how you meet with us still today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so uh, you got your Bible. Go ahead and open to Leviticus chapter 8. <clears throat> and today we're going to... Um, We've got just a little bit uh, left of chapter 8, which focused on the ordination rite uh, for the Israelites. And then we're going to get it, uh, spend the bulk of our time today in chapter 9, where we see the institution of their worship service, okay? Sabbath day worship and what, what that was going to, uh, uh, how, how that was going to be instituted and um, brought forth, inaugurated by um, God's word. But first, let's take a little bit, uh, look a little bit more at the end of chapter 8. So again, just to recap, this is, this is the ordination of Aaron and his sons. They're being consecrated, set apart for service at the tabernacle and later the temple in order to, be, to minister before God in his presence, to bring his gifts and his blessing to others. And so I'm going to pick up in verse 30 of Leviticus chapter 8. It says this, Then Moses took some of the anointing oil and of the blood that was on the altar, and sprinkled it on Aaron and his garments, and also on his sons and his sons' garments. So he consecrated Aaron and his garments, and his sons and his sons' garments with him. And Moses said to Aaron and his sons, Boil the flesh at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and there eat it and the bread that is in the basket of ordination offerings, as I commanded, saying, Aaron and his sons shall eat it. And what remains of the flesh and the bread you shall burn up with fire." And you shall not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting for seven days until the days of your ordination are completed, for it will take seven days to ordain you. As has been done today, the Lord has commanded to be done to make atonement for you. At the entrance of the tent of meeting, you shall remain day and night for seven days, performing what the Lord has charged so that you don't die, for so I have commanded. And Aaron and his sons did all the things that the Lord commanded by Moses. All right. So, reading that passage, what's the number that stands out? Seven, seven right? Seven days, seven days, seven days. And in fact, that last verse, and Aaron and his sons did all the things that the Lord commanded by Moses, that's the seventh time in this chapter that that statement is made. It's also there in verses 4, 9, 13, 17, 21, and uh, 29, for those of you scoring at home. And this is a very intentional kind of thing because what God is showing as he is instituting the office of the priesthood is that in some mysterious way, number one on your handout, ordination recapitulates creation. Hmm? That's a nice ring to it. That ordination recapitu recapitulates creation. Let me unpack that a little bit. God is showing us that through this, the ministry of the priesthood, um, that now he is restoring that original blessing and returning things to how he intended them to be in the beginning when it was good and good and very good, as it was in that first time. And it goes even further than that because the word for ordained, now this is just kind of an interesting um, connection and you can kind of take it for, for what, it's, what it's worth, but in the Septuagint, which is, the, uh, again, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, predates the, the New Testament in the time of our Lord even, goes back to 1st or 2nd century B.C. Um, in that Greek translation of the Old Testament, the verb that they used to translate 
ordained, to be ordained, was the Greek word teleo. Teleo. Let me hear you say teleo. It's a very significant verb and noun, the whole kind of word cluster from which we get telos. And telos is the goal or the fulfillment. And the verb form of it is to bring something to completion, to finish it. It's the word that's used in Genesis chapter 2 when it says that God, thus God saw all that he had made and all the heavens and the earth were good. finished. Well, they were good, but they were, they were finished. Teleo, God finished his work of creation. Okay? But then even more famously and significantly and not disconnected from all of this is the word of our Lord Jesus from the cross. That one word which he translate as a phrase when he says, it is finished. The lovely Greek word is tetelestai, in the, the perfect form, meaning that it, all that's past and present and yet to come has been consummated, brought to its fulfillment and its completion through our Lord's redeeming work on the cross. See. So that, this ordination is portrayed in, in ways that are uh, subtle and less, less subtle as this kind of recapitulation of creation. That just as there were seven days that God uh, created and then he was finished, so in the ordination it's, a, it's seven days and now that the, the uh, word for it itself is connected to that idea of finishing. Um, I think it's a, a really fascinating uh, a, a notion that all these would be connected and I'm not going to try to tease out for you every way, but uh, other thoughts on just that kind of felicitous connection between that finishing work of God and what he's doing in, in the priesthood. Does that raise to mind any other questions or, or thoughts for you when you think about that? Why don't the priesthood? we do seven days when we ordain our Oh, that's a good question. Leslie asks, why don't we do right? Why don't we do seven days when we have uh, ordination still today? And why do our worship services only go an hour? Because I know you guys were like, "Come on, let's go for a few more." Right. Seven million people alive is especially we don't do. Boil the flesh. Right. Yeah. I mean, we did do that at my ordination. Is there anything to Old Testament ordination different from New Testament in the sense that this teleos, I would think, is shadowing the teleos? Yeah, so say more about the that. The priesthood in the Old Testament yes. is like the temple. Everything is always pointing to Correct. the cross. Yep. So once the cross is here, yep. something brand new begins, right. and you don't go back to the Leviticus to figure out how we move forward. Right. So. Well, what we do is when we go back to Leviticus, it fills out our picture of what it means for us to go forward. Right. As, as I think that we, as we get this um, deeper understanding of what it means that that original ordination was meant to be the instrument and the channel through which God was going to recapitulate his good gifts of creation, so that now when we think about what it means for us, for you and me, to be the priesthood of all believers, that as we said last week, at our baptism we are ordained into the priesthood of the baptized, that now through the ministry of God's people, the Lord is continuing in his mission, he is continuing that new creation work. You know, you think of 2 Corinthians 5. If anyone is in Christ, boom, new creation, right? That now, when as the, the word goes out, as God's mission continues, that recapitulation of creation continues. Uh, Becky and then Bob again. Uh, word nerd. Word nerd, yes. I love Philippians it. Philippians chapter 1, is this the same verse yes, yeah. that Paul uses? You, yeah, go, okay. it is. Quote that verse. 
Um, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work mm -hmm. in you will bring it to completion. Yes. The day of Jesus yep, Christ. that's right. That's that same telao, teleao of God bringing it to completion. And I think with that Philippians 1, it's important to recognize, too, that he's, yes, he's going to bring it to completion finally on the last day as the day draws near. But um, the verbal uh, tense or aspect suggests not just that God's going to wait, 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 and then on the last day, boom, do it. But that this is a work that's going on right now. You know, the, the fancy $5 term for it is sanctification, right? But this um, being made in conformed to the likeness of Christ and growing in holiness, he's begun that good work in you and he's continuing it. And yeah, it's not going to be done until Jesus returns, but it is ongoing. It's ongoing. Yeah, Bob. And just back to that, at the cross, we really see a completion and, and then the new beginning in yes. which we now participate. Yep. Yeah, so that's what's interesting to me about that use in the Old Testament of Telio. Well, these guys must have represented the Lord. I mean, what you read today in Hebrews, that we yes. enter the tent and the sprinkling of blood and all of that stuff. That was, yep, we draw near yeah, to God. But like they the were doing it to the priest then. Correct. And now it's done. Yes. But, and now something new brings forth. And yeah. so, that's a great segue, because now we're going to see how that newness um, continues to, to take forth. So let's go to chapter 9 now. I'm just going to read the first verse for you as we get started. Chapter 9, verse 1. On the, which day? Eighth. Eighth day, Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. This is very significant, that number 8, and in particular the eighth day, is significant in to show that this is now that original creation was seven days. The eighth day comes to carry with it this symbolic and theological significance that now a new era has begun. And this is showing how in, the, in that Old Testament worship, it was like when, as the people of God worshipped, as they offered those sacrifices, as the atonement was made for them, now they were starting a new era a new era. That ordination was seven days, but on the eighth day, now things are, are ramping up on, on starting anew. Where else in the Old Testament? Can you think of any other places where eighth day shows up? Circumcision. Circumcision, right? So circumcision was on the eighth day. Circumcision was that, that covenant of promise. And God said, this one is, belongs to me. This is part of my people. And so they're starting anew as the people of God. That's absolutely right. So then you think about this in New Testament terms, and in Colossians chapter 2, that connection is made between circumcision and baptism. So that now we have received a circumcision not made with hands, um, to putting off of the flesh, but instead we have been buried with Christ through baptism. So that um, in some sense, um, baptism is that fulfillment of the Old Testament foreshadowing from circumcision. That makes sense? that now this is a gift that extends to all people, right? Not just males, but males and females, not just Jews, Jews and Gentiles, that is uh, rippling out to all of creation, that gift. And I think we might have mentioned this, or maybe it came up in the Roots of Faith class, but um, it's customary then for baptismal fonts, this isn't always the case, but in many cases, baptismal font has how many sides? Eight, Eight sides. Not just because an octagon is a really cool shape, but it's because that eight, the eighth day, that now you are being baptized and initiated into that new creation. See? And it goes further than that. Because Jesus, when does he rise from the dead? 
he does not rise on what was the, the customary Sabbath. Instead, he rises on the, the first day, which is the eighth day. It's a new week. Twice it's mentioned in John chapter 20. John wants to make sure we don't miss it. That Okay, so it's John 19, I think 31, when Jesus says, to Telestai, it is finished, right? Oh, we've got to go back further than that. <clears throat> beginning of John's gospel. How does John's gospel start? In the beginning. What's John painting for us but like a new creation narrative, see? He, he wants to make that connection to the original, to Genesis, which started in the beginning. Bareshith, Baraha, El, Haaretz. Yes, uh, get my Hebrew in there. Um, but that now in Christ, a new beginning has started. So in the beginning, Jesus on the cross, to Telestai, it is finished. And then when does he rise? On the eighth day. See, the first day of the new week. All right, let's stop there. Yeah, Hans. Uh, it said that Aaron and his sons were all of his sons? Or was it just uh, yeah. uh, Nadab and Abijah? Right. I, as far as I know, it would, be, it would have been all of his sons. All four of them. All because four of them. it doesn't mention them to the other ones until after right. the... We'll get there. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I was just curious if, was, if that ordination was just for the ones that were serving. Right. Or, or... I believe it would have been for all of them. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so my question for you, just reflecting on that, um, mm. that eighth day and that new start that God has through worship in particular, how does worship each week feel like a fresh start for you? Or does it? Maybe I don't want to um, presume. But if it does feel that way for you, how, how does that... Well, how does that manifest itself in, in your life, or how does it make itself kind of a, a fresh start? Yeah. Well, for one thing, um, the forgiveness of sins. Yes. You know, and, and the receiving of uh, the Lord's Supper for that confirmation, you might yeah. say, and sure. celebrating Christ's work yeah. that He's done to make us clean. Yeah. And then the other thing, getting, um, you might say, recharged Good. in our spirit yeah. to go forth and face all the chaos and confusion <laughs> right. of the world. <laughs> yeah, good. So um, Esther mentions kind of two things. First of all, that the forgiveness of sins. So all the junk from the, the previous week. Uh, and of course, we, are, we stand forgiven. We, we can and do receive that forgiveness personally, um, you know, privately and, and all these things. Um, but there's something about gathering together and hearing that word corporately spoken that's like, all right, kind of flushing the past week, right? But then also, like you said, recharged for the week to come. That's good. Other thoughts? I'm just, yeah, Bob. For, for, for me, worship recenters me every week. Yeah. I kind of remember who I am. Yes, I like that. Recenters you, recalibrates at you, recalibrates things for you. I got a scale recently because Thanksgiving is coming up. <laughs> and, uh, but, uh, you know, I, I put it and I, you know, I put it on the floor, weighed myself, I was like, oh. That's not, that doesn't, that's even worse than I thought. Um, then I looked at it and, yeah, it was, yeah, that's right, it's, it's kilograms. No, but it, it, had, it wasn't calibrated, right? It was like, it was, yeah, right, but won't go into any further details, but suffice it to say, it, it, was, it had to be calibrated, right? And I think there's many ways in which throughout the week we can get discombobulated. There's a good word for you. And we need to be recalibrated, recentered. So, yeah, good. It's like rebooting a computer. It's like rebooting a computer. Yeah. So you come in, you hit your control-alt-delete, mm -hmm. and uh, you start up again. Yeah, that's good. Wipes out the back. Yep. 
Start fresh. Start fresh. Yeah, good. I like this. Other other metaphors or ways that you think think about? I think that recharging, restarting, recentering, all of that is circling around the same idea. That's like it's this fresh start, and this is how God has has ordained it, how He's designed it to be. That we live in that eternal eighth day until our Lord Jesus comes again. All right. Hi. Yeah. Go ahead. Repeat that. We live in the eternal eighth day until our Lord Jesus comes again. Okay. So you think of it like this. Um, we, the, that old creation, the old is gone, behold, the new has come, right? So up until uh, you had all this, think of that as like the Old Testament era, right? And then you have the, the coming of Christ here. And uh, here, let's see. I think in, in other studies, I've, I've done this diagram before. This comes from a guy named George Eldon Ladd. But, so you have the Old Testament era, then you have the first coming, right? And then you have the second coming. Where we live here is the eighth day, uh, theologically speaking, right? Jesus' first coming and him saying the, the telestai, it is finished, right? The outpouring of the Holy Spirit, now that, so that now it says in 1 Corinthians um, 10, we live in this kind of overlap of the ages, Right? Uh, in Hebrew, they call this the Olam Hazeh, the age, the this one, okay? Or uh, Galatians 1 calls it the present evil age. And then there is the Olam Haba. Everybody say Olam Haba. Olam Haba. Is that fun? Okay, so the Olam Haba is uh, the age, the coming one, okay? Or the, the age to come. Jesus talks about this. Uh, in fact, even. And uh, the, the creed, we say, and I, I believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. What it has in Greek is the word ion, which is a translation of um, the olam. The idea is, and the life of the age to come. Okay? It's this renewal of creation. So for us, the olam haba and the olam hazat are overlapping. We live in both of those. It's this eighth day that's already started. We're looking forward to when Jesus returns again and the old age passes away, sloughs off like a snake's skin, and we go forward into the new age unalloyed. So we're in the eighth day. We're in the eighth day, yeah. We're in that sense. And with, you know, with the, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, right? Now, we, we are, um, the Holy Spirit is like that foretaste, it says in 2 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 3, I think, of uh, the uh, a down payment, the guarantor of the coming age, see? Um, so it's like a foretaste if you will, of, of what's still to come. Yeah. Cool. All right. Any questions about that diagram? If you can't read it, then it's understandable. All right. Good. So let's continue in Leviticus 9 then. All right. So it's on the eighth day in verse 2. And uh, he said to Aaron, take for yourself a bull calf for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering, both without blemish, and offer them before the Lord. And say to the people of Israel, Take a male goat for a sin offering and a calf and a lamb, both a year old without blemish for a burnt offering, and an ox and a ram for peace offerings to sacrifice before the Lord, and a grain offering mixed with oil, for today the Lord will appear to you. And they brought what Moses commanded in front of the tent of meeting, and all the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. And Moses said, This is the thing that the Lord commanded you to do, 
that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Then Moses said to Aaron, draw near. Hmm? Resonance is that Hebrews reading. Draw near to the altar and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering and make atonement for yourself and for the people and bring the offering of the people and make atonement for them as the Lord has commanded. Okay, so uh, what it's laying out here as the, um, uh, now as the, the worship service is being inaugurated and instituted, it goes back to remind us what the upshot of the whole thing is which is atonement, the forgiveness of sins. But even on the far side of that, the goal is glory. The goal is the glory of the Lord. You have it in verse six. This is the thing that the Lord commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Okay, so more fun with Hebrew. Uh, the Hebrew word for glory is kavod. Let's hear you say kavod. Kavod. Yes, and kavod has this, um, that literally means to heavy, to be heavy as a, a weightiness of it, but it, it comes to um, denote God's kind of pre-incarnational presence, okay? I can put it that way. This is God's um, pre-incarnational presence when he um, reveals himself, manifests himself to his people, principally through the cloud and the fire, right? In the place where the, the sacrifice is offered, there is the kavod of God. But you might recall when we started this study, we looked at what was kind of the impetus for all these um, uh, regulations and sacrifices that we have in Leviticus. Remember, at the end of Exodus, we saw how they had built the tabernacle, and then it was grand opening day, and nobody could go in, right? Because the glory of the Lord, the kavod Yahweh, came into the, the tabernacle, and the people, in their sinfulness and unholiness, were not able to enter, Okay? So it said in Exodus 40, at the end, it's the end of the book of Exodus, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses wasn't able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Wah, wah. You know, it's like the ribbon cutting day and then they're like, oh, you thought you were going to come in? No, 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 no. <laughs> Not so fast. So what this is underscoring here in, in chapter 9 of Leviticus is, again, all that has come before and all the, you know, some would look at it and cynically say, what's all this rigmarole about? It's not rigmarole. This is what God is doing in order to make atonement with his people so that they might be able to enter his presence and be there with that kavod of Yahweh. The, there, there's the, the word for you. So I think it's important that we, we keep that before us, that ultimately... Um, God's desire is as it was in Genesis at the, in creation that he would see his people, be with his people face to face. This is what we're talking about with the, the Kavod. Again, is that, that kind of pre-incarnational presence which then is pointing forward to the coming of, of Christ, the giving of the Spirit as God's movement is always to get closer and closer to his people. He, incarnate, he inhabits the praises of his people. He fills you with his spirit. So then he sends you out as little Christs so that you might bring his blessing as the priesthood of the baptized to others until finally at the, at the end of the book of Revelation, we see the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God and God himself dwells with his people. See, That's where it's all going to. And already we're, we're seeing that fulfilled in part in Leviticus and even more so in our New Testament era. Yeah, about this is such a big deal. Um, you know, I always thought about their wandering in the wilderness right. that far away, but they're walking through other people's 
territory, right. the neighborhoods, right? Right. And all the nations are watching a phenomenon never seen before, that this God dwells with his people. Yes. They can't, they can't figure it out. Yes, that this God dwells with his people, inhabits among his people. The word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. This in, fact, in fact, when God when God gets a little miffed and says, "I think I'll wipe them out," Moses says, "Then the nations will see, yeah, and will be convinced that you couldn't do it either." Yeah, right. Exactly. He appeals to uh, to God, to His character, and to His promise that you've promised to dwell with your people. It's a really uh, smooth move by Moses. Really, there. Uh, incredible, faith. <laughs> incredible faith indeed. So, okay, so that, this, is where, this is where it's going. Now, verses 8 through or 21 or so, I'm, I want to go through just briefly because really it's, um, it's kind of restating many of the, the sacrifices that, that we've already seen, okay? Um, but just to, to touch on a couple of things. So Aaron draws near to the altar and he kills the calf of the sin offering. You notice it's a calf here rather than a bull. That's really the only thing that kind of is different from the previous um, regulations that were given and... People debate, why is it a calf rather than a bull? I find the most persuasive argument that this is like, just as the calf is the young bull, this is like Aaron, just as he's starting and being ordained as a priest, you know, he's, he's not yet uh, a priest yet, and so it's a calf rather than a bull. Can't say for sure. Um, suffice it to say, it's a calf. Couldn't eat a whole bull, and so <laughs> stuck with the veal. Um, all right. Um, Okay, so you have Aaron, he brings the sin offering. Then verse 12, he kills the burnt offering. And you notice again, he starts with these offerings made for himself, first of all. Because if Aaron himself has not been made holy and forgiven, then he's not going to be able to be a vehicle of that holiness and blessing to others. So it starts with him receiving that forgiveness and atonement is made for him. Then verse 15 then he presented the people's offering and took the goat of the sin offering that was for the people. And then again, verse 18, he killed the ox and the ram, the sacrifice of peace offerings for the people. And again, this all is in keeping with how the Lord has commanded. I think what's important for us um, to recognize, uh, just in thinking about um, you know, kind of zooming out and God's way of working with his people and the way that he ordains worship as he has a very particular pattern to it, right? There's a, there's a structure to it, and we talked about this last week or a couple of weeks ago, that the idea of order is not antithetical to um, you know, spontaneous displays of God's presence, but that God in his wisdom has created us to be kind of liturgical animals, if I can put it that way. Creatures who uh, like to have order and rhythm and regularity, God made us that way, works with that as he institutes worship. And so, number four on your handout, I mean, divine worship is inherently liturgical. It gets inherently liturgical. Sometimes people will say, oh, I'm, you know, I'm against liturgical worship or I'm for liturgical worship. And that's a red herring. That's misleading because all worship is ultimately liturgical. It's just a question of how we um, embody and uh, profess and practice that liturgy. And uh, I'm going to share with you just this video clip. It came out a few years ago now and has kind of made the rounds. But I think it's funny, but it also makes this point that all worship in whatever shape is ultimately liturgical, even if it doesn't look well, like what we t typically think of as liturgy. So let's see if I can get this to work. 
You can't stop it. It's coming to a town near you. It used to be called contemporary. Some call it relevant. We're so cool, we call it contemporant. <laughs> But I, I think what's significant is that it was put out by a great big church called North Point Church down in, in Atlanta, which is itself, a, it's poking fun at itself and showing how it doesn't matter whether you've got an organ, whether you've got guitars, whether you know, it's more formal, informal. It's not a question of whether you're going to be liturgical. It's just what that liturgy is going to look like, see? Because God has created us to be a certain way, to be these kind of liturgical creatures, to interact with him in that regular kind of, of pattern. And uh, yeah, go ahead, George. Maybe you mentioned it before. What's the definition of liturgical? What, uh, where does that come from? Sure. Um, George's question is, what's the, what's the definition of liturgical? Well, I'll give you kind of the etymological definition, and then kind of, I think, what it 
it really means in the way that we tend to use it. So the word liturgy literally means the work of the people. And it was originally just a, a secular term that was used in, in the ancient word, world describing um, the, uh, the, the worship life, the cultic life of not just Christians, but anybody, the, the work of the people. So in the sense that um, the liturgy is kind of the, um, the God's work among the people and in, in the people. You might think of it that way. But when we tend to use the um, adjective liturgical or talk about liturgy, I think what we're talking about is that kind of um, pattern, the prescribed pattern of, of worship, you know, kind of a structure in the way that we encounter God and meet with him. Yeah. But when you think of it that way, there's the broader way that you can talk about liturgy, that there's liturgies in all sorts of different things, right? You know, you guys know I'm a big sports fan. Are there liturgies when it comes to sporting events? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, you better believe it, right? I mean, starting with the, the national anthem, everybody standing up, and the, the coin toss, and there's a liturgy. We're liturgical creatures. It's not a question of whether or not we're going to be liturgical, but just what our liturgy is going to be. And how, is it more or less aligned with God's word? That's what really matters. I did this uh, a few years ago. I was just curious. I was like, yeah, so how much of our liturgy is just God's word? Okay. So this is just, I went through and did an unscientific study of one of our settings of the liturgy. I think it was setting three in the, in the service book. You might find this interesting. If not, just tune out for two minutes. Um, <laughs> so I went through, I took all the words that, were, that are in the liturgy, and I just coded it as, is this a direct quotation from the scripture? Is it an allusion to scripture? In other words, it's not a direct quote, but it's alluding to a verse. Or is it some addition, right? You know, some other kind of uh, words of, of men, you might say. So as, that, as it played out, 66, you can't see this, 66%, two-thirds of the words in the liturgy, just direct quotations from the Bible. Another 20% were allusions, and then only 14% kind of additions, word, wordy additions, right? I'll give you some examples. Direct quotations. Glory be to God on high, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Okay, That's from the hymn of praise, but if you were doing This is the Feast, it'd be the same thing. All the words from This is the Feast are just straight out of the book of Revelation. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Right? Psalm 51, just put to music. Uh, the Nunc Dimittis. Lord, now let us thou thy servant depart in peace. Luke 2.29, post-communion canticle. And on and on as you go. Give some examples of illusions. Um, not a cat with an I. Illusions, like not there, but illusions. It's alluding to it, right? Um, so in uh, the opening verse, let us draw near with a true heart and confess our sins. It's from Hebrews 10 and Leviticus 9, for that matter. Uh, the creed, right? The creed, there's nowhere you can turn in the Bible and just find the creed. But it's from Genesis 1, Hebrews 11, Colossians 1, many, many others. Um, and then in the preface, you know, where we say, lift up your hearts. We lift them to the Lord. Uh, Psalm 25, Lamentations 3, Colossians 3, and other places. And then just your straight up additions would be something like from the confession of sins. I, a poor miserable sinner, confess unto you all my sins and iniquities. Of course, you're still using biblical language and ideas. But, um, and again, the post-communion prayer, we give thanks to you, almighty God, that you've refreshed us through the salutary. Anyway, not to belabor the point, but just showing, like, we worship liturgically because we are liturgical creatures. God has made us this way. It's not a question of whether we're going to be that, but just what that liturgy is going to be. And there's a great case to be made for these traditional forms that we use as the people of God because it's God's word. It's God's word set to music, which hides itself in our heart 
so that from the time we're very young until we're very old, we're able to recite those words back to God. And I've told you many stories, I've seen it more times than I can count, how folks, even to their dying days, because they have had that word impressed upon their heart, are able to say, Lord, now you let your servant go in peace. Your word has been fulfilled. That's a powerful, powerful thing. But I'll just leave it there for a second for other comments or questions along the way. Um, maybe 15, 20 years ago, we were at a gathering of people, <clears throat> certainly not all Lutheran. But someone asked me, uh, oh, what religion are you? And I said, Lutheran. Oh, they... That's a liturgical church. Right. And, yeah, I guess it is. Right. But aren't they all? Well, exactly. That's the right answer. Yours is the liturgical church, but aren't they all? It's just a question of what shape does that liturgy, yeah. liturgy take. Yeah, that's right. Other comments or questions? Yeah. Um, when my dad had heart surgery, hmm. they told us that when he would be coming out of the... Um, um, uh, with the anesthesia, yeah. Recovery. You know what I'm trying to say. That he would be alarmed and confused and upset. And so, you know, they were just telling us that so we would be prepared and know that that would be the case. And um, I just thought, uh, what's something that he's going to know? And um, I kind of picked something out of the liturgy. I don't know if it was especially meaningful, but... <laughs> Um, I mean, it's all meaningful. Yeah, first, of course, right. But it wasn't like something that I, like, I thought about for a long time and picked out. Right, right. And so um, when we were able to go and see him, I could see that his that he was just really discombobulated and, and upset. And, and so um, I sang that, and he calmed immediately. Mm -hmm. And he, he couldn't say anything yet. He was just still so out of it, but immediately he, he calmed just mm -hmm. to hear something familiar and, yep. and part of a rhythm that he knows. Yes. Um, you were like David with the lyre. Like, <laughs> to, to calm poor people. But yeah, absolutely. But the change was just so... Palpable. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It was amazing. Yep. And yep. Of course, you have those stories too where yeah. people just really perk up and Mm -hmm. are able to tune in when it's yeah because it's, it's familiar and it's powerful yeah when a church um, tries to sell itself as a non-liturgical church right what are they what are they selling you sure so Hans question what a church you know <clears throat> kind of brands themselves as non-liturgical what are they saying I, th I mean I think what they're trying to say is look we're not a stuffy formal church like those Lutherans right <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And there's something to be said for that, right? Because there's many ways not everybody encounters God or meets God in the same way and in a, in a, in a, a formal way. So I, I don't want to poo-poo that too much, but I think that's, it's trying to distance itself, I, I mean, in many cases, I would say. But uh, Bob, correct me if I'm wrong. No, I think it's right. I think it's an immaturity on their part to think that way. Going back to your point that if it's not spontaneous, it's not of the Holy Spirit. Right. You know what I mean? Like canned prayers. Yeah, right. At the same time, a liturgical church, you learn it over time. It's part of a community. So another reason they say we're not liturgical, 
it's an odd way of saying we're, we're seeker friendly. In other words, sure. you can walk in here and participate immediately and feel like you belong. Right. Whereas you walk into a church that, that has a, a regular formal liturgy and you're not used to it. Right. You know, I remember a story of a, two boys talking and one was Lutheran and one was Catholic and they went into the Catholic church first and he dipped his, his fingers in the baptismal font. What's that for? Well, I'm remembering my baptism. Then he genuflected. What's that about? Well, there's the host on the altar. And, and on and on. Then the next week, they went in to the Lutheran church. And they got a bullet. What's this? Well, it shows us the order of service. And then they sat down in the pew. And the pastor got in the pulpit. And he took his watch off and sat on the pulpit. He says, what does that mean? He says, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Well played. Uh, Priscilla, then Chip. I think also it can be um, liturgical. I think when you're saying that other people will look at it and say it's stuffy. I think what you're saying is liturgical. You can just do it uh, rote or mechanical without yeah. really thinking about the heart right. about it. And so I think, I don't, I'm not sure they're saying you're stuffy other than it's just rote. Yeah, exactly. What, what we don't want to be in whatever form our worship takes. Um, it, uh, we don't want it to be merely going through the motions. We are worshiping the living God. And even while we meet him with, with words that are, are well impressed upon our hearts that we're able to, to say by heart, we don't want to just say it by heart, but we want to say it with the heart, right? Um, there was a really good book that came out called Preaching by Heart. And I Pick up. Okay, sorry. You just let me right into that. But it, I, I think it's available. Okay, good. Yes, right. Uh, hold on. Yeah, go ahead, Chip. Well, it seems like, no matter, like, normally, like, you want to defend the way that the church that you prefer going to. So we always think, like, we're doing it better than somebody else because you want to feel like you're on the winning team. Sure. You know, but um, I think um, we're all looking for transcendence. Sure. In worship, yeah, and uh, there's, uh, I think, um, there's uh, pressure on both sides. Like I've gone to contemporary worship, or uh, I just call it like high church or low church. Sure. Low church, which has been done great and done poorly, and the same thing with high church. Right. Um, and it seems like uh, the high church, or the more liturgical, as we understand it, is uh, is when it's done poorly, you at least have the words of scripture here. Sure. As opposed to some. Thing that someone just thought of yesterday. Right, right. You know? So, but uh, there's a sense, and I think in our culture, there's there's a desire for new and a desire for transcendence, which which can be a false god in the sense that I keep sure. looking for something better and new and everything. But uh, uh, there's a, probably a lot to un unpack here. And you know, I, I run a camp which has very low church experiences around a campfire, and more high church like our. Today services, we're kind of run the gamut there, but um, uh, I was at a Jimmy Buffett concert <laughs> when I was a just graduated from high school, and I was, I had, I, I knew Cheeseburger in Paradise, but I knew nothing of the culture, I knew nothing, I knew literally nothing. I walked in this thing, some gave us tickets of that high knob, yeah. so, you know, and uh, I, Talk about a liturgy. I mean, talk about oh, yeah. I mean, people are dressed up. There are coral reapers. There's all these people wearing parrots in their head. There's just <laughs> shark fins. There's all this culture to it, right? Yes. Right? And it can be really intimidating because I had no idea about it, right? Yeah. Now, um, but I've never felt more welcome in my entire life. Sure. Yes. I mean, it wasn't like, look, 
you don't know what this is? Then you don't belong. It's like, I mean, maybe to excess, come on in. <laughs> um, join in. But I think that it's that spirit of, of welcome that no matter where you're at. I, mean, I, I was at a contemporary church down in Grand Rapids, and, and we walked in, and we, we kept our kids with us or, or young during the uh, like 45-minute sermon. And we got so many evil looks from people who were like, what are you, because our kids are making noise and everything. But like, we didn't know these people. I'm not giving my kids a big body. I mean, these are like nice people. But, right, right. Um, but so I felt unwelcome there. Yeah. I also felt unwelcome in a, in a real high church environment, too. So it's that spirit of welcomeness, I think, that, yeah. that can bring people in that doesn't really matter what type of church they're in. Yeah, this is such an important point. I think that hospitality really bridges that gap with whatever your worship looks like. It's about how are the people of God reaching out and welcome for others. Yeah, Becky. And to piggyback on what he's saying, it's the connections that sometimes a liturgy can eventually establish between each other and between us and God Mm -hmm. that breeds the specialness. Sure. By doing it over and over. I heard a Lutheran pastor say, I don't know how many times, People say, we need some faster hymns. We're, you know, too many half notes. Let's jazz up a little. And he said, then you try to be a Lutheran pastor and don't put Silent Night on Christmas. Right. What is slower than Silent Night? And people will be up in arms. Right. You know? And it's, he said it's because it's not the fast that they're really looking for. Yeah. Their hearts are craving the connection. Connection, And yeah. we're connected with Silent Night. Yeah. So it's the liturgy sometimes provides time for those connections to grow. Yes, that's right. Whatever the liturgy is. That's right. And then we sing slow. This is the song that everybody... On a personal note, too, uh, as far as the... Whether your liturgy is high or low or whatever, we were actually talking about it a couple of days ago. And, you know, we said... I said, you know, with the new hymnal, it's got everything I grew up with. You know, I grew up in the 50s, so, right. you know, that was the red hymn. Actually, it was the blue hymnal yeah. at the time. And everything that I grew up with was in there. And then today, with the uh, communion hymns, uh-huh. those were both. Well, ones that you were familiar from. That yeah. I was very familiar with. Right. And to me, it's a comfort thing on a personal level sure. to have that there. We had gone with our foster daughter to I don't even know what what denomination they were uh, to one of their services. They wanted to go because it was an outdoor service. I don't have any, I love the outdoor service here, but when it came time for communion, there was no uh, blessing of the sacraments or anything like that. And their daughter was, what, four, maybe five years old? Mm -hmm. She says, oh boy, cracker time! (laughs) And that's just kind of how they felt. They all felt it. That was very uncomfortable. Very uncomfortable. Well, and like you say, I mean, in the way you preface that is right. Like, there is definitely a a personal side to it. Um, You know, we don't want to necessarily cast aspersions to the way that they do differently. But I think that story also illustrates... That the way that you worship is always forming faith, right? Right. It's always forming faith. And so I think a um, question for churches and for, for pastors and church leaders isn't just what's your liturgy going to be, but how is it shaping the faith of God's people, right. right? Are they just thinking, oh, it's cracker time? Or are they thinking, oh, we're coming before 
Almighty God who deigns to meet with us in his precious gifts, right? Um, yeah, last one, Bob. I think your point's well taken here. It's almost not the form of worship. It's the theology of worship. Are we there inviting God to join us, or is he there right. inviting us to join him? That's right. And does your worship service reflect being called to draw near to him yeah. for gifts? Better than liturgical, sacramental, or non-sacramental. Yeah, sure. I think that's Good. a big, big piece of it. Because you can have very contemporary worship services that draw you in. Mm -hmm. The music invites you in. The melodies invite you in. The spirit. And, and down to details that seem very mundane, almost secular. The lighting. Lots of things they kind of make fun of. But at the same time, they are... It's just like the preaching. That, you sure. Know, there are rhetorical yep. means by which you help people draw into what's going on. For sure. But I guess what I struggle with a little bit, having served all those years as a district president, and even when I taught at the SEM, the worship wars just have worn me out. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Where it's the liturgical fighting against the contemporary or back. But we're judging each other's faith. Right. We're measuring each other's piety, and that, that breaks a person's heart. For sure. No, absolutely. And that's, that's why I think when we, we fix our eyes on our North Star and on Christ, and we say, that, that's what I want, and that's what I want for others, too. I can celebrate and give thanks to God when I see um, the, the people of God worshiping in all, all manner of different ways and saying, let's, not, uh, let's keep the main thing the main thing. And uh, keep, keep our, our eye on the ball and celebrate um, for the good gifts that we have and um, the, the things that we have received. But it's no reason to, uh, yeah, like I say, to um, cast aspersions on other, other expressions of it, too. Especially other, other culturally and, and so forth because, um, yeah. Um, all right. I think I need to, uh, to wrap up here. We'll, next week we'll do the last... Um, Part, last couple of verses of chapter 9, which are significant, and then get into the tragic story of our friends Nadab and Abihu. So thank you guys uh, for being here and for your input. We'll look forward to next week.